As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, host of the show, Merely the uh, the hype man for this guy from The Athletic, it's Phil Hay. Hello. And completing this wheelbarrow of footballing knowledge, mm-hmm. Michael Normanton from The Square Ball. Strange intro, but hello. Get in touch with the show via Twitter. Our new Twitter account is at The Phil Hay Show. And if you're not yet subscribed to The Athletic, you can do it right now for a special price of three ninety nine a month for six months. 40% off the full price of a subscription, where you'll get all the great analysis, in-depth features from the very best team of football writers around and ad-free versions of all our podcasts. What's on the agenda this week, Phil? We've got an interview with Robbie Gotts, academy midfielder who is on loan at Salford. Um, doing well over there, but what I really enjoyed about uh, speaking to him was the, the stories about training with Bielsa, weight loss, fitness, and and all the, the bits and pieces that go on at, at Thorpe Arch. Some, some great insight there. And we've also written, or we will be writing, about Bielsa's job pitch when he got the gig at Athletic Bilbao back in 2011. Good stuff to read all that then. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up with that 40% discount. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Let's look back on Chelsea then and a fine performance from Leeds in the end. And we'll go in on your one to watch from last week, which was Giroud versus Urente. Now, Giroud didn't play, but let's talk about Urente then, who did. And I thought had a much more assured performance compared to what happened at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, we also highlighted the passing, didn't we? The fact that there was quite a like, high likelihood that Chelsea were going to outpass Leeds, outpossession Leeds, which they did to an extent that you don't often see at Ellen Road or certainly don't see at Ellen Road with Bielsa as head coach. Um, it's what Tuchel does and it's what we, we expected from them. And because of that, it, it was essential that Leeds were really disciplined in that central area with Phillips in front of um, Llorente and and strike, and you know the the two centre backs were really really impressive throughout um, against a, a very very good team. It has to be said. I, I think to give Chelsea their due, again I haven't seen many teams who've looked more impressive on the ball. They didn't create a huge amount. Um, it wasn't as if their chances were better than than the chances Leeds produced. But I thought the way they looked for out balls from from difficult positions, the way they linked up was was really clever and and really slick. But Urenti and strike kept them pretty quiet and. Phillips was very, very good at, at dropping in almost as a, a third centre-back in the way that he does when Chelsea were on the ball and, and coming forward. And it, it meant that the only scope for getting through Leeds was to to go round them and to go out wide. And there were a couple of moments where Pulisic got a bit of change out of Alioski um, down, down Leeds left. 
Ailing was extremely reliable and the right had a, a very good game himself. And no sooner did I sort of write and talk about the fact that Leeds never draw games and you hardly get a, a goalless draw on Bielsa's watch, then one comes along. So I don't know if that counts as a jinx or reverse jinx. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But it was a it was a rare result by Bielsa's standards. They didn't seem to have natural width, though, did they? They had like forward men playing out wide and like didn't have Reese James in the starting lineup, for example, who caused us all sorts of problems down there. That's where they get the width from in the main, the fullbacks and, and Chilwell got forward a little bit, but but not too much and, you know, found, found Ailing to be very good defensively. Pulisic, like I say, there were a couple of balls across the box which could have caused problems and, and Harrison and Alioski took a while to, to get to grips with him properly. But you see that quite a lot in the Premier League, your 4-3-3, where you're almost playing with three forwards up top as opposed to the system that Leeds have where you have Bamford as a, a centre-forward, but then two out-and-out wingers in Rafinha and, and Harrison or Costa if he's starting ahead of Harrison. And that is why Leeds are so good at working the flanks. They've got overlapping fullbacks. They've got natural wingers there. Whereas with Chelsea, the, the three was a little bit narrow. Um, it wasn't really able to, to get around the sides. And, and it meant that because Leeds were so solid in the middle and, and given so little away, there wasn't much scope to dig anything out of the defence. And there was that chance for, for Havertz in, in the second half, early in the second half, which Melier saved. Just one moment where, where Phillips kind of lost his position and lost Havertz gave him a little bit of space. But that aside, there wasn't a great deal and I came away feeling that it was the right result. I thought a draw was right over 90 minutes. But if any team had deserved to shade it, I don't think you could say that Chelsea did ahead of Leeds. I thought on the balance of chances, the chances for Leeds were just as good as Chelsea's. They they just didn't have as much of the ball. Do you think Chelsea missed an opportunity to get at us by not playing a proper striker? I can understand why Tuchel didn't play Giroud because as we speak, Chelsea are a few hours away from playing Atletico Madrid again in the Champions League. They've got a great chance of getting through that tie. He was excellent in the first leg, scored in the first leg, has been very, very good for them in Europe. So it perhaps makes sense to have rested him given that Chelsea's aim in the Premier League at the moment is to finish top four and I think they will. It wasn't as if a win at Leeds was essential in achieving that. Whereas if they're going to go deep into the Champions League, they've got to make sure that they see off Atletico midweek. The reason that it surprised me slightly, or the reason why I thought Tuchel might have gone down that route, was because of how well Giroud did against Llorente, in particular in the first game at Stamford Bridge. And because of how good Giroud is at finding space in the box, at getting away from his marker, at kind of teeing himself up for chances which other players can can lay on for him and, and it almost needed that on Saturday it needed one team or the other to just find that little bit extra and that, that little bit of space to finish something off and, and to edge the match so it was there to be used I think had Giroud played it might potentially have, have been different because he's he's been in right form all season and, and is still a, a really really quality European striker but as I say I, I felt at the end of the game that it was a it was a fair scoring Tyler Roberts has been playing for his future um, you could argue, couldn't you, in this closing spell of the season and a better performance from him. Yeah, I don't feel that he's been playing badly actually since the turn of the year. It's just that it's been in, in fits and starts mainly because in general he's been coming off the bench so it's not as if he's he's been having long periods in the game but there, there have as ever with Roberts been periods in, in matches where he, he hasn't impressed or he hasn't been able to make much of an impact and I think it is the absence of a consistent flow of, of really convincing performances that mean that, that Leeds are going to have a decision to make in the summer and they're going to have to decide whether or not they stick with him and, and potentially extend his contract because he'll only have, have 12 months left. Or do they move him on and, and think about trying to make the 18 stronger um, than it is at the moment by, or the 20, I should say, stronger than it is at the moment by finding somebody else who, who can replace him. 
I just thought that the creativity in the main was coming from him on Saturday. He seemed to be the brightest of the players going forward. Um, I think the best of the players were at the back, but he was the one that looked like making something happen. He was really unlucky with the, the chance that hit the bar in the first half. That was a that was a top save from Mendy and proper fingertip, fingernail deflection that just carried it onto the bar. And I think, yeah, a better performance from him and, and more performances like that, I think, are, are going to put him in Bielsa's mind when it comes to the summer or certainly in Leeds Bank, when it comes to the summer and they think about how to, to redraw the squad again. And and you you would have to say that of the two players who are kind of floating around in that area, him and, and Rodrigo after Rodrigo came on for Bamford, it was Roberts who was the more impressive. Rodrigo working towards fitness, you'd assume as well, because he got exactly, I mean, I make Moscow White timed it out. He got exactly 45 minutes from the moment he came on to the moment that he went off. He did. I think there was that feeling that because it was so late in the game and because the game was very much in in the balance. I mean, I I didn't feel in the last 10 minutes, it felt like it was going to finish goalless, but it didn't feel in the last 10 minutes like either team were playing for it to be goalless. And because of that, and because you knew there might have been chances, you wondered if Bielsa might just have let left um, Rodrigo on the pitch. I, I wondered whether it would have been Cleek for Alioski, given that Alioski had been booked, um, had been warned again by Kevin Friend, who was kind of on on the verge of, of a red card. And, and it had a, a bit of a difficult game. I thought it was, it was hard for him against... Pulisic but that was the call it was click on for Rodrigo and Bielsa said afterwards he, he just isn't quite up to the level match fitness wise that, that he needs to be because he's had Covid obviously he's had injuries he's just back from this groin strain he isn't 100% and it did seem as if it was fairly calculated the amount that, that he was going to play and, and I think had Bamford not been injured I don't imagine Rodrigo would have played 45 minutes at all um, on Saturday I think he would have come on far later in the game because you know, up until that point, it'd been pretty well structured. Chelsea put a bit of pressure on, but Leeds were, were doing fine. So yeah, you're going to see Rodrigo come back gently and, and gradually in this period. And I, I mean, he wasn't in the Spain squad this week. He's he's missing from that. And obviously the Euros are coming round. So this is a, a pretty critical period for him. And I think there probably will be some underlying frustration with how his first season has gone because he can't quite he can't quite get into that groove where he's he's impacting on the game every week in the way that, that Rafinha is. But I say this all the time. I, I think when Rodrigo finally finds his rhythm, and that was the word Bielsa used after the game on Saturday, the thing he, he needs to uncover, I, I, I do think it will come good for him. He's not really got going yet, has he, properly? In the same no. way that Llorente didn't until he's sort of come back in now. It feels like we're just seeing the start of Llorente. And I think Rodrigo probably does need that extended run in the side, don't you think? Well, you've got somebody like Rafinha who you expect to play every week now and who you would never pick anybody else over on the right-hand side. And that's not to say that his form's going to stay at the level it's been at indefinitely. But um, certainly he's an, he's an easy pick and he's he's very close to first name on the team sheet. So you've got him who is, you know, as I say, making an impact week after week. You've got Rodrigo who, when he does make an impact, looks excellent and, and looks like the sort of player you would get for £27 million. But then you have the gaps where... As I say, there was COVID before Christmas. There, there have been injuries, and and this this one most recently kept him out for the best part of a of a month, a little bit longer. It does stop you finding your your impetus, and it does stop you finding your your momentum. and And you feel with him that he's still to settle in the way that Rafinha has. I think he's perfectly happy at the club. I don't get the sense that he hasn't settled in England or hasn't settled in Leeds. But it's been almost impossible for him to settle properly into the starting lineup because he's he's been in and out too much. Did you see the interview that he did in Spain? I think it was with AS, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? Um, And he was saying in that that he's not really had a chance actually to explore the area or the city just yet because of the lockdown restrictions and all that. So I guess there's a lot still for him to do in terms of assimilating into the area and feeling at home here. It's very difficult because normally when players come to the club, 
you will have other players who will take them out, who will help them settle in. Barry Douglas obviously knew Helder Costa from Wolves. And it has been the done thing for, for a while now that the players try to get out for dinner and, and try to socialise as much as they can and as much as the, the training regime allows. It's almost impossible to do any of that. Even if Rodrigo wanted to get out into the city properly, there's nothing open. You know, nothing open. There's nothing nothing to do. It doesn't make it particularly easy. But both him and Llorente, who've, who've come over from Spain, and um, Rafinha and, and Robin Koch, who came from, uh, Rafinha obviously from France, and, and Koch from Germany, they seem happy and they seem they seem content. And, and the reality is that most of the countries across Europe have got lockdowns of some sort or have got restrictions of some sort. So it would be very difficult to be especially sociable mm. anywhere else. But clearly for Rodrigo, it's a, it's a big move culturally, um, Valencia to Leeds, and, and it will be difficult to explore and, and get around at the moment. But there's certainly no indication. I think in terms of how they're feeling um, emotionally, there's there's no indication that any of the four who've, who've come in from abroad are, are struggling to to feel happy at Leeds. Mind you, Rodrigo experienced Bolton as a teenager, didn't he? So um, settling into Leeds as a grown-up is going to be an absolute walk in the park. Yeah, it's slight, slightly different. I think um, the switch from Valencia to, to Bolton would be rather more more extreme. Um, but as it is at the moment, he'll be seeing the inside of his house, won't he? Right, just back to this Chelsea game then. Do you think this has poured oil on the waters a little bit and calmed everybody down? Because there was that creeping anxiety was... Just returning, just because we had a little bit of a wobble in terms of form, haven't won in a few, and Fulham have got a win or two under the belt, and that gap was just narrowing. I think there were some nerves there, but it's we've been playing all right and not getting results, haven't we? We've said there were there were points due probably against Wolves and against Villa that we we narrowly missed out on, and this again was a game that could have gone either way, and we are fine. I know I, I never can keep coming back to this, but we're absolutely fine. We're we're all right. We're a good side in this league, and we've lost some narrow games against against other mid-table sides and it does start to worry you a little bit when we're not quite at the 40-point mark but we are better than Fulham and Newcastle and Palace and several of the teams I mean, Palace are above us now even aren't they and I do think we're in a fairly comfortable place still and that's me saying that who is one of the most miserable people you will come across That was a very good point against a really good team very expensive team as well and when we were talking about the, the lack of draws under Bielsa and it's it's not a huge issue because Leeds win so many games that there's almost more value to them in pushing for wins than there is in draws. Because as I said in, on the last podcast, one of the reasons that you've got Fulham stuck where they are and, and one of the reasons that team like Brighton are down there as well is because they do draw a lot of games and, and they're not very good at forcing the issue and, and digging wins out when they should or, or when, when they could. But it certainly helps if from time to time, rather than losing 2-0, 3-0, 4-0 to Chelsea, you can throw in a 0-0 draw. And it has been a bit of a struggle to pick up points this side of Christmas, certainly in the last sort of five, six, seven games. Bielsa was talking about, prior to the, the Chelsea game, the fact that it had been five defeats in seven. And he didn't think that the performances merited five defeats in seven, but those were the, the scores on the board. And a point against Chelsea, really good point, takes you on to 36. I didn't get the feeling that there was a, a lot of tension around. I think what people were starting to wonder was whether the Fulham game was going to lead to a bit of a swing of points where suddenly they were six points behind rather than 10 adrift, which they are at the moment. And that is, you know, that is a, a sizable difference. I remember very well that season under Gary Monk where Kearney scored with a what we all kind of joked was like a 20-yard putt on the 18th green to win the Masters' top corner job in the 96th minute. And Leeds were a long way clear of Fulham at that point and, and ultimately finished behind them in the table a, a couple of months later. So you never want to be complacent and you never want to be blasé. But the reality was that if Fulham were going to catch and overhaul Leeds, Leeds were going to have to go through the most horrendous run of form 
for them to you know to get beyond them in in the first place and it didn't seem like it happening it, it feels like Bielsa's side are too balanced and, and playing too well but we've probably gone from the position where we were all wondering whether Fulham would even make it to 30 points to a position where there's a good chance that they will go beyond that and some of the teams who are in the mix are going to have to do far more than they are doing. But at the moment, we're really looking at Newcastle and Brighton. That, that's where the pressure is. I was going to say, let's not forget, these teams have to play one another. And this weekend, you've got Brighton against Newcastle. And then the week after that, after the international break, we've got Sheffield United at home. But the other fixtures in that, Villa playing Fulham, Chelsea, West Brom, Southampton, Burnley, Man United, Brighton, Everton, Palace, Wolves against West Ham. So you could conceivably see every team around us just about dropping points. It's 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 fine, isn't it? Well, the question I would ask is, if you were a neutral or a supporter of another club and you were looking at the table, would you think that Leeds are in any danger? And the answer to that is no, you wouldn't. Because the 12th, they're on 36 points. You would think to yourself, at, at the very least... They're going to get two or three wins before the end of the season. They'll go past 40. They, they should finish a good, comfortable 10 to 15 points above the bottom three. So perhaps it's just the age-old paranoia that exists around here oh, and that feeling yeah. that um, if any club is going to get ambushed, it's it's going to be Leeds. And even in such a good position, and even though common sense should be telling you that you're pretty much there, you've got a game in hand over Fulham, it's, you know, it, it's, it's looking good. You never want to count your chickens, do you? Especially not not around this club. I mean, the problem with Leeds fans is we've got we've got ten games left or whatever it is thereabouts, and you look at the fixture list and you go, oh my god! In April we've got Man City, Liverpool, and Man United, but we've also in that stretch, you know, between now and the end of the season, we've got Fulham, we've got Sheffield United, we've got Brighton, Burnley, Southampton, West Brom. It's perfectly fine. One more win is actually going to be enough, in all probability. I think we were saying that about four weeks ago, though, weren't they? They were sitting on. <laughs> 29 or 32 points we were saying yeah one, one more win and, and that, that will do it I mean it still remains to be seen I feel as if Fulham at the moment have got the bit between the teeth and there seems to be a, a level of vibrancy there that I'm not sensing at all at, at Newcastle and not sensing in quite the same way at Brighton and, and it, it has given them a, a serious chance the question is going to be is it going to hold up or are they going to hit another another period where they go through 7-8 games without a win because that potentially could could kill them at this stage but from Leeds point of view I, I think they're in really good shape and and if what we were seeing on Saturday that the defensive performance is going to become a bit more regular if the defence is showing signs of tightening up now that you're getting all of your players relatively close to full fitness now that somebody like Llorente is is definitely coming good then it, it makes Leeds a, a better side again and um, as I say I, I think in, in a couple of weeks time three three four weeks time we'll we'll be looking at being very close to the 40 point mark and if you are feeling a little bit jittery still, even after all that persuasion that we've just done there, have a look at the championship table and look at the places second, third and fourth and just be glad that we're nowhere near that anymore because Watford, Swansea and Brentford all squabbling over second place. It's giving me flashbacks to the uh, the season that we blew it in the playoffs. Every time I see a midweek round of championship fixtures, it makes me glad we're not there. Just that feeling of going to Ellen Road to play Watford on a Tuesday or whatever, it was just, it was so hard. Yeah. It felt like you. It felt like it was never going to end that sort of period. It's the the margin of the the gaps as well. If you drop below Barnsley in, in sixth, you've got Bournemouth who are two points back. So are they in the mix? You would think so, but then it's amazing how some teams who lie in seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth place for for a lot of the season never quite get there, never quite make the difference. You've got Warnock's Middlesbrough a little bit further back. There's five points to Barnsley who've who've got a game in hand, but again, you never say never. And that battle for second place is 
pretty fascinating. I mean, it, it seemed to me again like it was there for the taking for Brentford um, not so long ago. And suddenly they're down in, in fourth and OK, they, they've got a game in hand as well. But it, it's so very, very tight. And I, I suspect that having been so good last season, Brentford's thought this season, particularly looking at the table and who's in it, would have been to avoid the playoffs at all costs if they can. And it might just be heading down that route for them again. And and I'm with you. The idea that at the end of the season, after the game against West Brom, we all pack up and, and head off for the summer while various teams in that league go and fight it out in the playoffs is lovely. And I'll tell you what, the championship is a miserable decision because I got a text from a friend um, this morning and he's got a pal who's a Middlesbrough fan and they exchanged messages that went like this. He said, late playoffs push and the Middlesbrough fan came back saying, it was dreadful. Warnock is destroying the club. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, the, they're eighth. They are eighth, um, and they're they're hanging in. And I think, in fairness to Warnock, I'm not sure prior to the season anybody thought that that was necessarily a, a squad that was going to get promoted. It, it certainly wasn't the best of them. I mean, the bottom line in the championship is that you don't get a huge amount of great football there, which is why Bielsa was such a phenomenon. And and it's important to say that his team are not the only team that have played well in that league. Some of Brentford's performances over the, the past few years have been really outstanding and, and they are a you know they are a quality championship team. But it was rare to get a thrill in the championship, wasn't it? It always felt like a slog. It always felt like something that you just had to wade through and cross your fingers, especially when everybody got a bit tired and fatigued this side of, of Christmas. And I don't know, maybe maybe we'll all slowly get used to the idea of it being serene and pretty calm and turning up to Chelsea at home drawing 0-0 and, and going home again but it's a massive massive break from what we've all been used to Sheffield Wednesday doing the best to get out of it anyway they are yes and the thought of Brentford blowing it again just that little bit of schadenfreude I'm all for it it's what being a football fan's all about isn't it I don't care one way or the other to be honest I mean, with my sort of neutral hat on I think given that they play some of the best football around at that level I'd, I'd probably prefer to see them go up to be honest I think if there's one thing Bielsa taught you about the championship, it's that if you if you play properly and you and you have a go, you get what you deserve, or you should. And you want another uh, London away day? Is that what we're saying? Another winnable London away day. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Continuing on the theme of Sheffield, Paul Heckingbottom, former manager of Leeds United. Hard now to believe that he was the guy who preceded Marcelo Bielsa because it feels like a lifetime, if not several lifetimes ago, that one. It does seem like a different lifetime. It is only three years ago but it it could as well be 10 years 20 years because of how much has changed and because of the huge shifting gears between not only him but Christensen and, and other people who'd gone before him like Hockaday and Milinic and even the you know the season with Rosler and Steve Evans the, the appointments that you felt were as much as anything to stop Leeds imploding completely and, and to make sure that they hung around in the championship as opposed to it getting 
getting worse than that. I was talking to Michael before we came on air and, and we were chatting about the games that Hickenbottom had in charge and discussing the fact that a lot of them are difficult to remember. The worst of them are not difficult to remember. I mean, the one that always sticks out in my mind is Middlesbrough away, in part because it was about minus 12 with the wind chill on that Friday night. The game was only just on because of the snow, but it was the most woeful performance and a performance which in kind of mid-March or early March seemed to just wrap the season up completely. It was that sort of night where Middlesbrough were, were going for the playoffs, Leeds turned up there, lost comprehensively, and you thought, well, that's us done, really. You know, that th- this is, is not going to go anywhere. And, and I do think that game was symptomatic of the fact that there was never any managerial bounce on the heck and bottom. And at no stage did it really click. At no stage did it really look as if he was stamping an identity on the team or changing them. I, I got the impression from time to time that he didn't feel like he could properly until he got to the transfer window. But the problem with that is that you're dealing with a club and a fan base who who expects some sort of impact. You know, they don't expect to just drift through 15, 16 games with, with nothing to, to show for it. I mean, that, that was a, a strange summer between him and Bielsa because to begin with, you weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Heckenbottom was still talking to the club about transfers, but they were being pretty non-committal about them. He went on holiday to Greece and and as he did, the ball started to roll properly with Bielsa. And it's it's not a secret that Leeds were talking to, to Bielsa before they, they sacked Heckenbottom. You know, that's um, that's common knowledge. Um, and I think they, they'd started to get the sense from kind of April onwards that they were going to have to make a, a change. And as, as Victor Orta puts it, they were going to have to go for a top-class head coach who possibly smashed the budget at Leeds. You know, somebody who was outside what they would normally expect to pay for a manager. But yeah, seeing him back in, in work at Sheffield United brought back some some strange memories and actually some memories of what was a pretty unhappy period. Yeah, I've blanked out just about all of this period. It feels, honestly, it feels like I've had my mind erased, like Total Recall or something like that, from before that Stoke game that Bielsa took charge. I, I couldn't tell you much about that. And in fact, I, I hated a lot of what Leeds United represented to me at that time, in that it felt like we had a little bit of hope when Radrazani came in and then we got, you know, that lift. I went to the Bolton away game, you know, we won 3-2 and you thought, under Christiansen, you thought, oh, all right, okay, we seem to be heading in the right direction. There's a bit, at least there's a bit of a plan now. And then so to go through that cycle of just sacking and never quite getting it right and the signings misfiring a bit, it all, I don't know, it just, it demoralised me. It was almost like a final blowout of chaos and shambolic activity before you finally found the man who was going to settle everything down and, and who was going to bring the, the club to heel because you had Saiz sent off for spitting in the, in the FA Cup, banned for six games. You had the total loss of discipline under Christiansen where players seemed to be getting sent off every every second week. Constant suspensions. You had the issue with trying to change the club crest, which was obviously a, a disaster. You had the end of season tour to Myanmar, which provoked a lot of criticism and you had MPs in Parliament speaking about it. And in, in the middle of that, you had the, the, the very sort of quick decision to, to go for Heckenbottom once Christiansen was sacked. I don't think it would be fair to say that it was an overnight decision because I know that Radrazani was having doubts about Christiansen from the point where they lost to, to Newport in the FA Cup. So Alter in particular will, will have been given some thought to, to what they might do. And, and it's only, I think, only fair to say that at the time, Heckenbottom had a, a good reputation as a coach. He'd done very well at Barnsley. He'd had a lot of players... They were good from there, sold. So they, they were on a, a downward trend at that point. But I don't think the feeling at Barnsley was that it was necessarily 
his fault. And in order to get him out of a, a new contract that he'd signed, Leeds paid half a million pounds for him, you know, so it was a chunky, chunky investment. But the team didn't change. The team didn't change. The style didn't change. You didn't see, in the way that when we went to the, the Stoke game, Bielsa's first game, everything about it felt different. The tempo and the intensity, the structure of the team, the system, the formation, the tactics, it was a completely fresh page, completely clean page with a, a head coach who seemed out here in comparison to, to what you'd had previously. Whereas with Heckenbottom, it, it felt as if the club and, and him were, were going through the motions of finishing a season that wasn't going to amount to anything. And, you know, I, I was as supportive of him as I could be. I, I felt that he was, I, I, I didn't feel that he was he was unlucky, but I felt he was taking charge of a club at a time when it was very, very difficult to make a, a proper impact and, and taking charge of a dressing room which seemed to be a little bit fractured and at a very low ebb. I, I guess the counter-argument to that is that what you saw in the summer was Bielsa coming in and taking hold of predominantly the same dressing room and, and basically waving a magic wand and turning them into a completely different team. But Well, well do you remember, sorry to interrupt, I was no. going to say, do you remember when uh, we played Stoke and in the skybox was Heckingbottom and they sort of said to him, what has he done to change things? And he didn't have an answer, did he? No, I'm not surprised that he didn't. I mean, you must have looked at, at that team and thought, these are the same players that I was working with last year. And, and I guess the answer is, one is a elite, you know, world-renowned coach. And, and, and the, the other, other is Marcelo Bielsa. <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the other isn't, with yeah. the greatest respect to, to Heckenbottom. And, and that was the huge change in, in mindset and attitude over the summer, was that you could persist with up-and-coming coaches or untried, untested coaches, Coaches who weren't proven necessarily in delivering what Leeds needed to to deliver. And I know Bielsa hadn't worked in the Championship and I know he hadn't been promoted with a club from the Championship. But that felt like a, a rather twee way of analysing a, a, a guy who'd coached Argentina and Chile and taken Bilbao to the final of the Europa League and the Copa del Rey. He was clearly qualified and... Was well, clearly not, enough for it. Well, not in Steve Evans' opinion. You, there's the famous clip of him on Sky. You know, can he do it at Rotherham, etc., on a cold Tuesday night? Yes, he can. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very easily. Yeah, he can. And and Evans' argument was that they should have gone for Allardyce or somebody in that mode. You know, somebody. Oh, I who, wish we had somebody who knows the championship. And we used to joke about this a lot, didn't we? About he, he knows the club and and this this that and the other. But I remember tweeting after, and as you know, as much as I tried to to support Hickenbottom, I remember tweeting after the Norwich game. They lost down down at Norwich, and they were. Very, very flat. I can't remember seeing too many games in which the players looked as if they just wanted to get it done and get home. You know, well, yeah, it was, our, our mate Moscow White described it as being like it was almost like a testimonial match for was it Wes Houlihan? It was, yeah. yeah. It, it felt it felt like that, and it it felt embarrassingly as if Leeds were almost happy to contribute to that because what did it matter? You know, what what did it matter given that they were already mid table and it was the penultimate game. But I said after that, you know, there are players here who, who are going to have to go because there are some who, who aren't good enough. But I said as well on Twitter, I don't think Heckenbottom can complain about the fact that he's getting it in the neck when we've reached this stage of the season and it's still really difficult to understand what it is that he's trying to do, what it is he's trying to change and, and how he wants the team to look like in comparison to how Christensen wanted the team to look like. And Heckenbottom would make a lot of the right noises. He He would talk a lot about the best teams are the teams that are good off the ball, and he's and that's not wrong. You know that's that's absolutely right. And and Bielsa, I think to a degree would agree with him there. But equally, the best teams are also top class on the ball, which is something you see with Bielsa's leads. You've got the balance between the press and the the pressure that they're able to to put on when the opposition are in possession, and then you see the quality of the way they play when they have the the ball 
at their feet. And it is, it was and will always remain a massive swerve from a really mediocre situation to something absolutely spectacular. It felt to me that um, that Stoke game, it was like falling in love all over again. Everything that you knew you loved about football was brought to bear on that day. It was just lovely to watch all of it. Sunshine, a great atmosphere, hope, and then just this brilliant football. I wonder, with Heckingbottom, he essentially came in on a platform to kind of knock the dressing room into shape, didn't he? And almost be, I don't want to say an authoritarian figure, but to certainly to get the discipline going again. Because like you said, it had got a little bit fractured at the dressing room. But do you think that he tried to do that, but without the authority to do so? Contrast with Bielsa, who's obviously come in with the World Cup, World Cups under his belt and has immediately got the whole thing you know, purring like a finely tuned engine. There was a bit of that. I mean, someone told me that when Heckenbottom came in, one of the first things he did was ban snoods and other sort of um, winter garments from, from training and say to the players, look, you don't need any of that. Just get out and train and, and stick your training gear on. Don't don't be daft about it. And when I look back now and when I compare it to the way that, that Bielsa sort of exerts authority, it, it feels like a very English or British attitude that, doesn't it? Don't wear gloves, don't do this, that, the other. Whereas what you need and what you want and what Leeds were crying out for, not just during the Heckingbottom era, but through long periods prior to that as well, was somebody who could control the club and control the dressing room, both with their authority, but also with their tactics and their style and, and their own ambition. And I've always felt that Bielsa must be quite scary for a player and particularly quite scary for a player in the Championship. Players who will understand about his aura and his personality and, and will discover very quickly that he's his own man and he's not to be argued with. And, you know, he, he doesn't really take guidance from anybody. He, he, he has all this analysis round about him, but his tactics and his approach and everything else are his own and it won't be influenced. And there's no point in trying to kick his office door down because the response and the reaction you get to that will, will do you no favours at all. Whereas with, with Heckenbottom, I, I don't think it was purely down to how he was trying to, to dominate the dressing room or, or how he was trying to re-establish some, some authority there. I think it was partly as well the fact that the players seemed to realise that it was running away from them and there was a lot of criticism around them and I don't think they were dealing with that particularly well. I don't think they were coping with the mood and, and the, the atmosphere which said it's going wrong again. You know, yet again, this is another wasted year. The general feeling that a lot of the players weren't good enough and, and you know, I, I interviewed Liam Cooper and, and he said, to be fair to the supporters and to be fair to the, the media who, who criticised them and that would include me, it was very hard to look at the table and the results or some of the performances and, and to argue otherwise. You know, where was the evidence that we were good enough? But Bielsa clearly saw what he was going to do. He saw ways that he could improve them. Um, he, he saw ways in which he could make a massive difference to, to individuals in the squad. And because of that, a lot of them have gone from, you know, the point where you were debating whether or not they were good enough for a promotion push in the championship to the stage where they're mid-table in the Premier League. And, and a few of them are on the you know the verge of some pretty major international call-ups. The appointment, it seemed to me to play out in a similar pattern to the way Warnock did, that he was brought in with still a chance of the playoffs and yeah. the board very much saying, well, we, we it's not too late to change this. And then within a, almost a few weeks, it was, well, what am I supposed to do with this squad? I'll bring in my own players in the summer. And it was in some ways quite a relief that we pulled the plug when we did rather than let him damage that squad and bring in his own players because in the same way that we, if we look back at the Warnock era, it would have probably been better for him not to buy anyone and not sell Adam Clayton so he get Paddy Kenny and all the stuff he did with that squad I think actually set us back a few years and I feel like Heckingbottom would probably have done the same whereas we actually had Bielsa come in who left it pretty much as it was with a bit of fine tuning and 
shipping a few people out, getting Barry Douglas in, but there was there was not any major surgery to it, and he was able to just make it work without the huge expense of essentially repurchasing a team. I can't imagine a parallel universe where it would have gone as it's gone under Bielsa with that they they stuck with Heckingbottom through through that summer. There are two sides to this. One is that promotion was never really realistic um, from the point where Christensen went, regardless of the table. And it, it comes back to that thing of you, you're sitting in the division saying the gap's only six points, seven points to the playoffs, but you've got four or five teams between you, um, you in sixth place. And in order for you to get to sixth place, you need a lot of other clubs to lose games. And you're not playing that well anyway, and the squad doesn't look balanced enough, or, or at least players aren't, aren't on it in the way that they need to be to turn over results regularly enough. So he was probably right if he if he did think to himself, look, this squad is not going to go up. He was right to think that. The difficulty comes when you look from the outside, and you know, only Heckenbottom can tell you what, what his attitude to actually was. But if you look from the outside as if you've taken that view and therefore you're kind of disregarding the games, the, the way they played in a lot of the games felt as if it was just marking time um, to get that season out the way and and you mentioned you know the the fact that they pulled the plug quickly it did seem to me the the heckingbottom appointment like the the last occasion where there was that almost like that and this had been the case at Leeds for years this wasn't just a, a new thing with the Radrazani board but there was that last kind of splurge of delusion of do you know what we're still in the mix here and we almost nicked that game against Millwall despite being down to 10 players and do you know what it could still happen and there's enough there are enough games left and enough points up for grabs that line in the sand and that clear point at which it, it was a case of saying we, we're not good enough, we're not good enough and, and whether or not the players are good enough, um, whether an, another head coach can get more out of them as it is at the moment, this is not going to get us promoted. Um, so it, it did just reach the point, it was like a eureka moment, light bulb flashing um, and everybody at Leeds thinking the key to this is making sure that, that the man at the top is absolutely right um, and is very, very high calibre. And, and that was really why they, they ended up going for Bielsa. In a clear case of cutting our losses, you've already mentioned half a million pounds to Barnsley. How much will Heckingbottom have been paid out as well? Just thinking how much did this this brief few miserable months actually cost us? Off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly how long his contract was. I, I suspect there would have been at least another two years. Um, he will have been on six figures, Heckingbottom, and I don't know exactly how much. But you'd have been talking a hefty amount of cash for a championship club. Not an inordinate amount and not so much that it would it would put you off doing it. I mean, sacking Bielsa and paying up Bielsa is a totally different consideration to sacking somebody like Heckingbottom in the way that Hockaday was, I was told, on about £150,000 a year, which is really low wage for the championship. It's let high alone. for Dave Hockaday, I would say. Well, it, it probably is quite high for Dave Hockaday, <laughs> but it, it's a very low wage for, a, you know, for Leeds United and, and for... A championship club these days, and even back then, was was quite low. But sometimes these things have, have got to be done, and you can't. You know, the the more you sack managers, the more it costs you, and it, it can be really damaging financially. But uh, there there always come points at which you've got to see the woods for the trees, and which you've got to to do the right thing. And I think publicly there was very little support for Heckingbottom. I get. I think the question in a lot of our minds was. If it isn't him, who's it going to be? And are they going to get rid of Heckingbottom and make another appointment of that nature, somebody else? I mean, Christensen sold himself to Radrazani and Orta with a presentation in Barcelona, which by all accounts was really impressive and said the right things, touched on the right issues that they'd been under Gary Monk and, and made the right noises about how to, to improve. But Christensen was also extremely raw and extremely green and, and largely unproven. 
I think with Heckenbottom, had you known for sure that Bielsa was going to be the replacement, you, you'd have had no no doubt at all. But it was still reaching the end of that season and thinking, who is it going to be? What what are they going to do here? And, and how are they going to try and push the boat out in a different way? I would accept 150 grand a year. Just want to go on record and say that. That feels like a decent wage to me, as, as little as it may be for Leeds United in the Championship. Certainly do when you're getting most of it paid out after a, after a couple of months yeah. as well. <laughs> do you think it's worth the mockery, though, that Hockaday has had to put up with in the past six or seven years, the, the, was it worth the humiliation of Chilino telling us that he was going to be sacked after the Watford game, but then relenting and deciding not to bother only to sack him after the Bradford City Cup game the following week? Or worth the humiliation of Chilino phoning people like me after the, the Brighton game at home and saying, I don't like this guy, I, I don't think he's right, after, you know, two, three weeks into into the season. I know there's there's money involved, but from a reputational point of view, uh, it was quite a big hit. But what reputation? That's the thing. It was so out there. It was it was Mike Bassett, England manager, wasn't it? This is true, but I guess having no reputation means that you don't have a bad one publicly either, doesn't it? You, you're not in the minds. If, if, if someone tomorrow was to do a list of the weirdest appointments in English football history, Hockaday would be on it. And, and if someone in 50 years' time did a list of the weirdest English managerial appointments, he'd be on it again because that story is, is never going to go away. And perhaps Hockaday doesn't care. Perhaps it, it doesn't, doesn't bother him. £150,000 is, is a lot of money. But I always think to myself for these things, money doesn't make you happy. And I'm not sure how much satisfaction Hockaday can genuinely take from looking back at that. There must have been a bit of him thought, though. Maybe I can do this. Maybe it'll it, work. He was like that. And I felt that one of his bigger failings was the fact that when he was appointed and perhaps it was a bit of a defence mechanism and perhaps he felt he needed to do this but that he didn't really acknowledge how strange the decision was and he didn't he, he, didn't, <laughs> he tried to front it out didn't he, he just like yeah, no, this, this, yeah I was meant for this job he, he didn't almost try to placate the supporters who were looking at him and saying what on earth are you doing in this job by saying to them look I, I understand that this will look strange and it's it's come as a surprise to me but you know, hopefully I'll be able to prove myself with the way that we play and, and the results that we, we get. I always thought from a starting point of looking as if you totally understood why it was that Chilino had reached out to you, it was not a good look. There's a question around that. Do you think there was a touch of that with Heckingbottom, who was obviously at far higher up on the, the footballing ladder than Hockaday ever was? So it made sense to an extent, but uh, you know, we look back on uh, on interviews recently and I think it was it was his first press conference when there's one point, I mean, do you remember this? Were you there where he decides to kick back in the chair and he looks to recline the chair and almost, you know, you think, is he going to put his hands behind his head here to uh, to tell uh, tell this anecdote? And it just, I don't know, it lacked humility looking back on it. Yeah, it's easy to read that sort of stuff into that. The thing I remember about that press conference was it was dominated for a period about the, his comments about Leeds, you know, saying that when we were youngsters in Barnsley, we hated Leeds, Leeds hated Barnsley. We used to split into teams depending on who you supported and, and play against each other when you were kicking around in the park. I, I, for what it's worth, I, I thought that was something or nothing, really. I didn't think that that's the sort of thing that, that should necessarily count against a manager getting a job somewhere like Leeds. But it did become a stick to beat him with once things started to, to go wrong. I think Heckenbottom was of the view that he was good enough for the job. I, I definitely think that. But the issue, uh, as I said, was that there was nothing in those 16 games that proved that he was, and there was nothing in those 16 games that made the support en masse believe that actually it would be a good thing to move into the summer with him as manager. I, I would struggle to think of many close seasons or the lead up to a close season 
in which I'd received more emails or tweets or anything else saying we have got to have a change here. You know, it wasn't like that with with Gary Monk, even with Steve Evans. I think there was that sense of you know if they get rid of Evans, who's it who's it going to be? And don't forget that before. Gary Monk, there was a bit of contact with John Sheridan, there was contact with Daryl Clark down at Bristol Rovers. You know, it, it was all very up in the air under Chilino, but there was a, a there was a real groundswell with, with Heckenbottom of people saying, look, it just doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel as if this is going to go anywhere. We join you now then in part three, post-press conference. Uh, Marcelo Bielsa giving us an update ahead of Fulham on Friday night and the headlines. Bamford's fine. Rodrigo freshed out. Cooper is out. Yes, Bamford should be okay. They're not 100% sure at the moment, but he took a bang on his hip, that collision with Rudiger against Chelsea and was obviously substituted off. Um, It sounds very much to me like he will play and if he is uh, called up by England, will be fit for England duty as well. Rodrigo has another muscular problem. He's a doubt, not ruled out completely, but I think it's probably a high likelihood that he will be. And Liam Cooper still ill. Um, my understanding is that that it is COVID, although the club aren't talking about that, and Bielsa never never comments on it on it either. But clearly, he wasn't in the Scotland squad earlier this week, and, and Steve Clark had said that that Cooper was going to miss the first two of their games had he been called up. So you can you can read into that what you will. I did ask Bielsa about Rodrigo because it it is starting to feel like it's a, a period on, a period off for him. You know, he's been unlucky with injuries. He had COVID before Christmas which took him out for a while and then it took him time to, to recover his, his full match fitness and Bielsa was, was saying as much he, he said you know he, he came in at a point where he didn't have a full pre-season with us and it took him a while to, to get a start in place in the team and then he had what Bielsa thought was his best game away at Aston Villa and, and after that there was the issue with Covid and, and it's been kind of back and forward between groin strains and and other things, and, and and he just hasn't found his flow and, and hasn't found his rhythm. And I think the unfortunate thing for a player like him is that you you're always going to be cast as the record twenty seven million pound signing, and and people want to see see some some payback from that. Um, but Bielsa did say, from my point of view, he, he's a outstanding striker, really dangerous forward, very useful forward, and it is just a case of him finding full fitness, finding his his best form. So a definite definite vote of confidence in him, but. It does look like there's a chance that, that again, he, he won't be available at Craven Cottage. And Craven Cottage is the scene and another return to London, the final one of the season. Our last chance to ever win there? Well, I mean, this has to be the one, doesn't it? Of, of all the games this season and of all the games in London, this on paper is the easiest, or at least it's against the, the squad who have got the lowest level of performance, the squad that you would assume Leeds have the, the beating of. They're definitely going there at a, at a point where Fulham have had a, an upturn and I know they were beaten by Manchester City but actually played pretty well against City and had good structure for, for most of the first half and, and part of the second and, until it all ran away from them. It seems to me that that win that Fulham had over Everton middle of February was just the ideal result at the right time for them. They'd gone for about two months without a win. They were starting to you know to fade away pretty badly at the bottom of the table, and I think it was a case of if if they didn't have a good February, they were going to be too far adrift to get back into it and since then they made the most of the game against Sheffield United fantastic win at liverpool and it's it's kept them kept them in the mix and i I sense a, a lot of confidence down there i do I, I think there's a different level of confidence at Fulham in comparison to what you see at, at Newcastle. I think the players seem to be far more invested in what Parker's doing, only my observation, but then the, the Newcastle players are in what Steve Bruce is doing. And I think at Brighton, the third team who seem to be very much in the, the thick of it at the moment, I do think, again, 
they seem to have a lot of faith in what Graham Potter's doing down there. But it, it feels to me like the team who've, who've had the, the best spell, certainly in the last month or so, have, out of those three, have, have been Fulham. They've done all right. But I mean, my dad is like you, Michael. He's tremendously pessimistic when it comes to Leeds. Like he is fairly convinced we're going to lose probably every game between now and the end of the season. Fulham will go on an unbeaten run and win every game that they've got between now and the end of the season, as will everybody between us, and we'll go down. Uh, but Fulham's run has it's not been that great, has it? I mean, they they drew with West Ham, they drew with Burnley, drew with Palace, and shaded a win against Sheffield United. Still not great, is it? I mean, they've had a couple of good wins. The Liverpool win in particular was was very good, but they're still not hitting anything like consistency. So they're there to be beaten, aren't they? Surely. Well, that's why if you spoke to Scott Parker, I very much doubt that he would say to you, we're, we're targeting leads in the table. No, the teams they'll be looking at are Newcastle and, and Brighton initially, neither of whom have been great this season either. I think Brighton are probably the team who, you know, if you're looking at XG and, and all that sort of stuff, the, the team who should have outperformed the results so far. I think with Newcastle, they, they just seem to be in a complete rut and, and can't get going. And when you compare them to Fulham, there is impetus at Fulham. I don't think Fulham are going to go from having struggled to the degree that they did to suddenly winning four, five, six, seven games back to back. But it's two defeats in seven, two defeats in eight, something like that. It's, it's a good it's a good spell of form for a side who are in the bottom three and, and trying to, to get out of it. I still think at the moment I would rather be in Newcastle's position with points on the board. But I think in, in the grand scheme of things, if you were measuring the optimism in Tyneside versus the optimism in, in West London, something tells me it's probably a little bit higher in West London at the moment. Yeah, no, fair point. But let's not forget, they've still only won five games all season. Yes, Fulham, absolutely. At, you know, out, out of 29. So I, I don't see what we have to be scared of there at all. And on the Square Ball podcast, I predicted we would go there and win handsomely. I'm not going to go for handsomely. I think it'll be quite a close and and competitive game. I think Leeds will win down there, but I suspect you'll find that you get a fairly good performance from Fulham. What do we define as a good performance, though? What what does it matter if we beat them? It doesn't matter in the slightest, no. I just don't think that, given the the sort of gap between the clubs and the position they're in in the table, this is going to be one of those where Leeds waltz in, win 4-0, and then canter home on the coach. I think it will be slightly more difficult than that. Um, I can see you making notes as you speak, so you're going to keep this for next week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when, when, when Leeds trounce them and, and in, this, yeah. in, in this London curse with a 7-0 route in uh, Craven Cottage. But I do think Leeds have, have got the beating of them. I reckon it'll be as competitive as it was when they came to Ellen Road. What do you make of the job that Parker's done there? Because it, it felt to me last season like he got a bit of a free pass. I know he did eventually achieve promotion, but it felt to me like they should have been nearer the automatic places than they were given the squad he, he had last season. I wasn't particularly impressed by him last season and I didn't think that the coaching he was doing was turning Fulham into a particularly watchable side or a particularly entertaining side. It, it felt to me as if the sum of the parts should have been greater than it actually was. But conversely, I almost feel like he's done a better job this season. And I know that that sounds odd, but I think they were always liable to be bottom three or, or down in that position. I kind of feel since second half of the season started, you know, the, since the, the turn of the year onwards, that you've started to see, from what I've, I've watched of them, you started to see a, actually a quite a decent little squad developing there. And I don't think it's a squad who that's going to give them much potential beyond fighting relegation. But they've done well to get themselves back into the mix from the position they were in. And I think, you know, Sheffield United have just faded away completely and obviously have now parted company with Chris Wilder. West Brom are going to have paid up um, Slavin Bilic. They have obviously appointed Dalladice, which won't have been particularly cheap, and they're still stuck on 18 points and are just not going to get out of that now. There's there's not enough not enough time 
not enough scope for them to to drag in the points. Fulham, I think it's it's actually done Parker credit as a manager the fact that they haven't just got lost in the ether and they haven't effectively been down before Easter and and they are still putting pressure on Newcastle and Brighton and I think even if they go down this season he might feel that his his standings improve slightly and that you know it, it I know that sounds that sounds a little bit back to front and and relegation should not be a good thing to have on on your CV but I think in the circumstances and given the players he's he's got down there they're pretty much where I thought they would be I think he's done reasonably well this year I guess to pull together a, a team of a lot of loanees as well because yeah. particularly when things start going against you loanees can as we found out in the in our relegation season they can down tools a bit and just they don't have a particular eye on the next season they're just thinking well I'll be out, I'll be out of there in a few months time and it's someone else's problem I think there are a few players there as well that other clubs would be interested in I don't mean across the board and it's not as if the entire Fulham squad is going to get pecked by Premier League clubs but you guys like Anguissa and you know Mitrovic if he's if he's in form and, and in the right frame of mind that there are there are some some good players down there those are the players that they need to play really well in the and they're going to stay up someone I'd quite like us to get if they go down well you'll remember the battle between Anguissa and Phillips at Ellen Road and, and that kind of ebbed back and forward there were periods where Phillips was on top there were periods where Anguissa was definitely on top and you know in the end it was a it was a very tight win and, and it took a big final 10 minutes from Phillips to help close that out but he is a he is a quality midfielder actually and I think there'll be quite a few with an eye on him Regards to Mitrovic what's happened to him because he seems to have fallen a little bit out of favour something that goes back to the to the back end of last season um, during the playoffs when he was carrying that injury wasn't he and they kind of they managed him back in very very carefully he's been in and out of the side this season He can blow hot and cold Kim Mitrovic and I think there's always been that question around him of whether he is a, a Premier League striker he he came up with Newcastle and then didn't get too much of a look in with them. He's um, he's come up with Fulham and he hasn't scored a great deal. It's been three goals for him and, and two of them in the league. Both of them were at Ellen Road. He was the sort of guy who, if you were looking for looking for Fulham to stay up and, and to you know to do more than, than scrape it, you wanted him to be chipping in with probably ten goals, double figures if if he could. And and that's that's what he's there for. I would suspect it will be down to form. It'll be down to form. It'll be down to his goal scoring. It will come down to Parker's gut feeling about what he needs to do to make sure that the season doesn't slip away from from them. You have to make decisions like that, and I think you have to you have to be honest enough to see what is working and and what isn't working. And persisting with something for too long has the tendency to to wind up in in trouble. And I think on the basis of the the results recently, you would say that he's been getting it right more often than not. Where do you think we can hurt them and, and vice versa? Where can they get at us? The area that Leeds hurt them in at Elland Road was was out wide. You remember the the goal from Costa, which was created by um, by Bamford breaking down down the left. Um, I think again that is where Bielsa will will want to put pressure on. That's where I think Leeds will will try to get in behind. I don't know whether Fulham could consider a point from this to be a good result. They're starting to get to the stage now where the the more winnable games, and I think they will look at this with it being at home and against a, a mid table side. You know, potentially winnable. They're going to have to take risks, I would have thought. They, they can't be overly negative. And when teams come at Leeds, that's when, when Leeds are good, that's when the space opens up, that, that's when they get in behind and are able to make use of their pace and their quick passing and, and their precision. So I can see goals in this, for sure, but I, I, I suspect the wide areas are where Fulham might be vulnerable. Feels like Rafinha's gearing up for a good one as well. It's been a couple of games since he's had a really big impact, so maybe we uh, we get something out of him this time. Yeah, that's exactly where they'll, you know, where Bielsa will... Will want it to happen. It's funny saying he's had a quiet a couple of quiet games because they're, they're almost quiet by his standards, really, aren't they? It's still been 
pretty much front and centre. He's still always been there. He's been on the ball. He's he's been involved. He's created things. He he was unlucky not to score against Chelsea. Another really good save from Mendy. And that's one of the things I I really like about him is that even when you're talking about Rafinha being six out of ten, seven out of ten, he's easily worth a, a place in the team and and his his quality still shines through. But yeah, it it would be good if he went to town down there. On the other wing, what do you think will happen with Costa and Harrison? They've been chopping and changing a bit recently. They have. It's it's really difficult to say and it's hard to get a, a definite feeling for how Bielsa feels about that position, which when you see him like, because he's, he's normally so certain about who should play where. So, you know, for example, Phillips at four and Bamford up front and he, he has, although I, th- I think it'll be a challenge for him at the moment to know what his best centre-back pairing is, but it was certainly Cooper and Cock at the start of the season and then you've got Ailing at, at right-back. Left back is a position where he's never truly settled on anybody, and and you read into that that he's not a hundred percent sure of what to do for the best there, and perhaps he doesn't have exactly what he needs. It's felt a little bit like that on the wing that Costa and, and Harrison are, are fighting over for that that position that's up for grabs. I don't think either is quite ticking the box at the moment, and I don't think either of them is in the the sort of form that Bielsa would want them to be in. So, good question. I mean, my. I, I always sort of feel in these matches that Harrison is probably the call because he's got so much stamina and, and so much fitness and he is very good defensively as well as, as going forward. But it it's seemed clear to me right the way through that Bielsa does like Costa. He likes what he does and, and has a fair amount of faith in him. Regarding Bamford, there is a very real possibility that he may be carrying an England call-up with him as well, which yes. you wonder if that would put a, a spring in his step. At Craven Cottage, that'd be nice for him. That'd be a, a, a fairy tale. If, I mean, especially with Ailing as well, if he gets one. More than a, a spring in his step, he was saying after the the last England squad was announced and he wasn't in it that he hadn't really slept the night before. I, I think I'm right in saying there were quotes from him where he he said to Calvin Phillips, "When you found out, how did you find out? You know, when did they phone? Would I have had a phone call by now? You know, all this." And it's clear to see that it's become a a huge ambition for him, which. It's quite intriguing when you think about how resistant he was to the attempts by Ireland and Mick McCarthy to call him up. Obviously, he wasn't playing as much as he wanted to for Leeds. Hadn't made the impact yet, Ellen Road, that, that he was hoping to. But there seemed to be a bit of indifference there. And it got to the point where McCarthy almost said, look, I'm not chasing him anymore. You know, I, I was supposed to meet him. We were supposed to discuss this. It hasn't happened. If he wants to play for us, he can play for us. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But, you know, I've, I've got other things to do. And I think that was fair comment, really. I think it got to the stage where McCarthy had pretty much played his hand as as, as much and as aggressively as he could. Yet with England, there is obviously this burning ambition to be involved. And, and I, I think he is going to be in this squad. I mean, I, I don't want to jinx him and and I don't want the, the squad to drop tomorrow and us to say, oh, look who's, who's missing. But I think there's a serious chance this time around. I mean, Southgate has been at, most of the games recently he was there again at the weekend obviously there are others in on the pitch that he'd, he'd want to look at Mason Mount being one of them there have been links um, with Luke Ayling today as well the idea that Ayling might be in the squad I'm, I'm not convinced that's going to happen but again we'll we'll see when the when the the, the list drops um, from from the FA but I think you know for, for Ayling it would be a, a mega mega achievement I think for Bamford because it's been there you know it would be a surprise for Ailing. it would come out the blue that I think with Bamford it's been there in the background for a little while now isn't it this idea that his chance has got to come and, and if he carries on playing like this then then it should and maybe this will be the moment and huge credit to him for the steps forward I think he's taken this season and you could see what he would offer to an international side in terms of the closing down 
and the running that he's going to do. You know, if even if he was to come off the bench, he would do a great job uh, in terms of work rate. Well, Leeds are a creative side, so if you play in this team, you're going to see a decent number of chances, but he is very good at getting on the end of them. I mean, his stats are as good as just about anybody's in the Premier League when it comes to the number of shots on goal he's had, the number of, of chances. Obviously, you know, XG is the, the cross that he's had to bear for ages, but his XG is pretty good and it's not as good as other players in the division. But I think the bottom line is when you start to pick through the strikers through in it and you think about who's English and, and who realistically Southgate might include or, or should include, it's hard to edge him out of the discussion. And I know there are a lot of people at The Athletic, um, our stats guy, Tom Wavell in particular, who think that he's well worth a go. And this is the time to to look at him. And, and as I've said before, if you're not looking at him at this point when he scored this many goals in his first season at the Premier, in the Premier League, unless he's going to become a 20-goal-a-season striker at this level and unless he's you know, going to really acclimatise to the point where he just stands out all the time, when are you going to give him give him a go? And I think that'll be on Southgate's mind. I think he'll be thinking to himself that this is the point. If you're interested in this guy, this is the point at which you've got to give him a go. And it's San Marino and Albania. With you know all due respect to those two nations, if ever you're going to have a bit of a you know a free hit in terms of opposition, particularly San Marino, you got yeah. to eyeball that and think it'd be a nice opportunity to get a debut, get a goal or whatever. Yeah, and I think coming up to the the selection of the squad for for the Euros, it would be much more of a gamble to pick. Bamford cold for that um, than it would be to at least have a look at him not just in the games but how he how he copes with the training sessions how he fits in with the rest of the group how he looks when you walk through your drills and your, and your shape and everything else that was the, one of the things with Phillips was that people who were around the England camp said that he looked extremely comfortable there he didn't look like he was a new arrival he didn't look like he was in his shell or, or scared of, of the environment and you know what Phillips is like he's incredibly laid back and and He's never really been phased by by a great deal, but I think that makes a difference to an international manager. The feeling that you know, if he was to take Bamford away with him in the summer, would Bamford be a good fit? Not just for the team, but on a personal level, I personally think he would be um, in the same way that that Phillips has been. But you know, this little spell would give him far more insight into that. Well, fingers crossed for him. Returning to Craven Cottage, uh, one to watch, please, for Friday night's game. This is the thing, the player, the issue, whatever it might be. Using your famed prediction powers, Phil, uh, what should we uh, what should we be keeping an eye on? Well, they mix the formation around a bit to Fulham. They can play three at the back or four at the back, and and when they go four three three, it tends to be Harrison Reed in the middle rather than Angisa. But keep an eye on the Angisa Phillips battle again because that was that was very intense and and very competitive at Ellen Road, and and it's in that sort of area that the game could definitely be won and lost again. So those two going head to head, I think, will be very interesting. Away win, yes. Big away win? No. Same. All right, I'll go. I'll go big away win then. Go on, go on. Stretch this out. What is big? I would class a big away win as three nil or greater. Mm, I think you've got to go higher, don't you think? I, I think, think, he's, I think he's got to go to fourth. Yeah. I think I'll allow you three. I, w- I was sniffing round four, but three seemed like a good entry point. Okay. Well, we'll reconvene next week and see. We will indeed. If you want to sign up for the Athletic and read all Phil's stuff, there is that offer on at the moment. Forty percent off the full price of a subscription. That's three ninety nine a month. For six months, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of that. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pods. 4 0. 4 0. We'll speak to you next time. The Phil Hay Show.